0: Hey, everybody, I'm Wyatt Weed. I was the boar predator in Predator 2, and you're listening to the Rude Horror Podcast. You're listening to the Rude Horror Podcast with your host, Marcus Rude.
1: What's up, everybody? Today we have a great episode. I uh, had a chance to talk to actor, director, uh, film editor. He's done a lot of stuff, and he still is currently working on stuff. But I got to talk to Wyatt Weed, and uh, he's such a cool dude. I'm uh, thankful that he came on the show and got to talk for a while, and uh, we still have so much more to talk about. So it sounds like. He'd be willing to come back on at a different time and continue talking. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to mention that uh, Midwest Monster Fest will be back in East Moline, September 5th through the 6th, and it's going to be at the Rust Belt. It's a, a different location than last year, but uh, it's, from what I hear, it's going to be a, a bigger parking space, and, uh, or a bigger parking lot because uh the parking was sort of a, a problem last year but it looks like uh it's gonna be better this year so uh they've only announced two uh guests so far I mean it's it's January so we still got like almost 10 months or so until until then but I figured something now and uh that way you can mark your calendars and uh, start saving up some money because I think it's going to be a good, uh, a pretty kick-ass horror and uh, pop culture uh, convention. The two guests so far, uh, the first guest announced was C.J. Graham. Uh, he played uh, Jason in Friday the Thirteenth Part Six, and uh, Linnea Quigley, the scream. Square- Screen Queen from uh, like Return of the Living Dead Night of the Demons uh, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers uh, <laughs> You know, I mean the list is, Goes on and on But uh, yeah, so I'm sure there's going to be more announcements From now until then So just kind of be on the lookout for that You can <clears throat> go to their website At MidwestMonsterFest.com and uh, just find out more information. Um, you know, it's it's still pretty early, so there's not a whole lot that they've put on there so far, but uh, definitely uh, check it out every once in a while and just, you know, see if there's any new updates on the uh, guests and whatnot and when to buy tickets. Uh, so, yeah, without further ado, um, let's get to uh, the main episode where we're having this conversation with Mr. Wyatt Weed. Hey everybody, you're you're listening to the Rude Horror Podcast. I'm your host Marcus Rude and I have a special guest with me today. His name is Wyatt Weed and he's been in a ton of stuff. Um, He's a um you're like a jack of all trades and a master of of all <laughs> like you you've done so much stuff and I could just keep going on and on with the stuff that you've been in and have worked have worked on um but um this this is a horror podcast so uh I'd like to talk to you about uh the horror genre and maybe some of the the stuff that you've worked on that is uh in in the horror genre as well sure um sure. yes yeah, so uh i guess i'll ask you a question uh are, are you a fan of the horror genre or like what uh what kind of got you into the horror genre
0: you know I, I think it's probably fair to say i'm a fan of just movies in general and my tastes ever since the beginning my tastes have always gone towards like science fiction and fantasy, and you can roll horror in there. What what I'm not a fan of is I'm not a fan of, and I'm sorry if this disappoints any of the the fans out there, but I'm not a fan of just the hardcore blood and guts. Like, I'll give you an example. I think the first Saw film was amazing. As the Saw films came on, they sort of went on, they sort of started to define, you know, the splatter porn or the gore porn genre they really became about just how horrible way can we kill somebody um but when horror and fantasy or horror and science fiction you know smart horror like alien i love alien um you know all the movies of the 1950s that were science fiction and horror like the thing uh movies like that um and, and then as we get into modern day, uh, movies like The Ring, the remake of the, the Japanese film Ringu, um, horror, smart, scary without being unnecessary. Um, I just for the first time recently watched It, the new version of It, and I really enjoyed It. I haven't seen chapter two yet. So but but when horror crosses over with science fiction, especially like Alien, Alien, um, There's a fantasy film made in the early 80s called Dragon Slayer. I think Dragon Slayer is one of the greatest fantasy films ever made. And, of course, it's got the dragon. It's got the monster. Um, And then, like, in the mid-80s, there's a a vampire film called uh, Life Force. Life Force where they find the alien spaceship and they find the vampires on the alien spaceship. So it's kind of exploitation and kind of science fiction and kind of horror. And then, of course, you know, the socially conscious stuff that's really fun to watch, like uh, Dawn of the Dead. I'm a big Romero fan, like the original Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. Um, Even the remake of Dawn of the Dead by Zack Snyder, I thought was pretty good. And um, I think I think World War Z might be the greatest zombie film ever made. World War Z with that budget and just, you know zombie fighting worldwide i just i think that film was just spectacular so so i am a horror fan but i'm a fan of a lot of different types of movies but i'm not the horror fan who's like exhaustively collecting every variation of friday the 13th or you know Freddy or anything like that Uh, i appreciate it um but but you guys can talk circles around me when it comes to the hardcore horror stuff
1: oh for sure yeah, and like the, the movies and stuff that you named off, I I totally agree. They there's some really good ones like Life Force. Uh, I watched that earlier this year, and it and what I liked about it was just how unique it was. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it, you never see anything like it. It kind of like it's not like Alien, but it like it, it has that s es- explore. Uh, what am I trying to say? Explor- like the exploration. Explor- yeah, like the exploration point of of. Of, uh, uh, like the fear of the unknown, like you don't know what is out there and uh, and what you're gonna come across, you know. And as a human species, I mean, going out there in <laughs> in and space. Have,
0: and I have to say too, I was I have a, a friend, and his ma- his name might come back up again as we talk. A friend of mine, Ted Smith. Um, Ted Smith's a horror fan and Ted Smith's, he and I worked on some films together. Uh, Ted Smith and I, we were like budding filmmakers in the 80s. And before we moved out to Los Angeles, you know, the the video craze took off and there were all the mom and pop video stores. And he and I, he was more into makeup effects than I was, but I was still a big fan of learning how to do effects so you know he might have been trying to chop a head off or chop an arm off for a movie and i'd get involved and i'd help him not because i really wanted to see buckets of blood spraying but i was fascinated with the process of how to do it so he and i spent a lot of time searching the video stores back in the 80s for all the most obscure horror stuff we could find and what i finally learned was to stop looking for the really obscure like italian stuff like there were like a couple of really good italian horror films in the 80s that were really fun to watch like the the the, the Fulci or the falci stuff like zombie and things like that and then as you started getting farther down the rung the italian horror stuff just got bad so after 20 or 30 visits to the to the blockbuster store to rent a vhs of some extreme horror film we'd heard of we finally stopped doing that because we realized that was just diminishing returns so i've seen some really really obscure stuff that i don't really need to see
1: again anytime soon <laughs> so. oh well there's, there's definitely some bad ones out there <laughs> yeah um but, uh, i guess maybe i'll i'll jump to uh the one that that really st- uh, and I'm sure you get this a lot, but uh, what was your experience like working uh, on Predator 2 as the board predator?
0: You know, my experience was really good, and hopefully everyone will find this interesting because how I got involved with Predator 2 is a lot of backstory, and the backstory is really interesting. Um, I had gone out to Los Angeles in, like, 1988, and that's when I went out to to work as an actor, work in special effects. I went out to Los Angeles to be an actor, but, you know, you try and get jobs and you try and work, and, you know, you need something else to pay the bills when you're not acting. So I'd always liked models, sculpting, special effects, so I started doing special effects stuff. Well, I ended up falling in with a guy named uh, Steve Wang, and Steve Wang's a fairly well-known name in the effects industry. He and Matt Rose and Eddie Yang and some other guys – are really instrumental in, like, that whole suit monster craze that started, like, in the mid-'80s, starting with, like, Monster Squad and then Invaders from Mars up through Predator and some other films. These guys sort of just engineered the whole new wave of creature suits. Because back in the day, you had, like, you know, you'd have, like, Creature from the Black Lagoon. It was just a big latex rubber suit. It was really cool, but it was just a big latex rubber suit. Steve Wang and those guys, they came up with new technology for body molds, how to put a Lycra suit on the body mold, how to do a two-part mold that you could inject foam into and baking the foam in these big ovens. And they just raised creature suits to an art. And by the time they got to doing the first Predator film they they were really kind of at their their peak of of how to do this. And that's part of why The Predator is so good. The first Predator film, it's good because it's a good movie, but it's also good because you, you guys have heard the whole Jean-Claude Van Damme and the first version of the suit and all that. Yeah, yeah. They've got
1: Talk hysterical the stories.
0: Beatles. Yeah, they've got the hysterical Beatles. stories about getting Jean-Claude out into the jungle. And one of the famous stories is uh, Jean-Claude early in the, the process he's he's looking at the leg extensions and he's looking at the costume and he's like oh i i will be able to kick i will be able to kick very high and the guys in the pickup shop are like no jean claude you're not going to be kicking very high and he's like no i am a kickboxer i will kick i will kick very high i can kick over the top of your head i'm like jean jean claude you're going to be out in the jungle it's going to be like 120 degrees you're going to have 100 pounds of foam on you you're not going to be kicking anything no i'm a kickboxer and of course, they get him out into the jungle and they put him in the suit and he's like, oh, get me out. It's so hot. Get me out. <laughs> so he turned into a complete prima donna. The suit didn't look good. The suit wasn't working. They fired Jean-Claude and they shut down for a couple of months, went back to the United States and they, they built the predator that we know and love now. And that was, you know, they just went back to basics. This man in a suit, let's make it good. So Steve Wang went on from Predator to start working on his own films. And he made this film called Kung Fu Rascals, which was a martial arts comedy. And I didn't really know anybody in Los Angeles, but I'd, I'd met Steve Wang at a, at a special effects shop. And he said, hey, I'm working on this Kung Fu film. Do you want to help? And I said, sure, because I knew who Steve was. You know, I read all the I read Fangoria. I read Cinefantastique in the 80s. I'd seen Predator. I'd seen Steve's name in the credits. I knew who Steve was. So. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to go along with this guy. I'm going to learn whatever I can. So we started working on Steve's movie Kung Fu Rascals and just soaking up the knowledge. Just the guy had so much brilliant knowledge. And through Kung Fu Rascals, I met a stuntman and this guy, Brian Simpson. Here's something that a lot of people don't know about the first Predator film is when the Predator wasn't on screen with another human. It didn't have to be Kevin Peter Hall. So when the Predator was on screen with Arnold and you needed seven foot two Kevin Peter Hall, then he was in the Predator suit. If you've got a Predator jumping treetop to treetop or falling off a cliff or something or standing near an explosion, that could be uh, Brian Brian Simpson. Well, I got to know Brian real well. Brian and I are the same size with the same height with the same build. So they already had Predator suits built to fit brian simpson so here comes predator 2 and they need 10 predators at the end of the film and i get a call from brian on like a monday night going dude you want to be a predator i'm working on predator 2 we need predators and i'm like uh yeah i want to be a predator so literally like i got the call monday night like tuesday morning 8 a.m i'm on the 20th century lot getting fitted into a predator suit and the deal was brian was supposed to be the boar and I will admit to the fans, there's some there's some fuzzy there. I don't know who in the film... I know certain shots are me, because of th- those shots we shot. There are some shots. Some shots could be Brian. Some shots are probably me. But basically what happened is they grabbed Brian and said, we need you on second unit. we got to go shoot this scene of the Predator sliding down the wall. Can someone fit your suit? And Brian's like, I know exactly who can fit my suit. So that's how i got the gig i literally got the kid gig because i knew somebody it wasn't like i auditioned and showed him what a great actor i was it was like the dude, it was like johnny bravo man i fit the suit
1: so, <laughs> That's amazing so
0: it, it was an awesome experience though i mean people always ask me how danny glover was we were shooting so fast so much footage so quickly that like they bring danny in from his trailer talk, 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 talk. This is what it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom. Shoot, 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 shoot. Okay, Danny, go back to your trailer. Because the set was hot. The set was hot and smoky. So while we were there and on set, and while Danny Glover was there and the director was there, we were working fast. We were working efficiently. Everybody got along real well. There was no yelling. There was no shouting. Um, It's the closest I ever came to passing out in my adult life. There was a scene it's the big sweeping shot where all the predators are decloaking. He thinks there's only one, and all of a sudden he realizes there's like ten. Mm-hmm. And they were using a motion control, like a computer-controlled camera, and it would shoot the scene twice, once with us in it and once without us, so that they could make us each appear. Uh-huh. And it was like, okay, everybody get your heads on, everybody get your costumes on, okay, everybody get in position, wait a minute, wait a minute, the camera screwed up, hang on, hang on, okay, everybody get ready to go, get ready to go, oh, wait a second, wait a second, the camera screwed up. And literally, I was standing there as a predator, ready to go on the hot, smoky set for like 10 minutes, waiting for them to get the camera to work. And my vision started getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And I just started focusing on my breathing and concentrating on breathing. And then my vision came back and my head cleared. But that's the closest I've ever come to passing out in my adult life. But the guys were great. The set was great. Kevin Peter Hall was, it's so sad that he's gone because he was such a cool dude. He was so laid back. He was so friendly. And he just seemed like, he seemed like he was so excited to just be a part of all this stuff. Like, He had found his niche in life. I'm a big, tall, skinny guy and I can play monsters. And it just seemed like he loved it. And there was me and one other guy. And we were like the shorter guys. And then all the other predators were like LA Lakers basketball players. And these (laughs) guys, these guys were all tall. They all just worshiped Kevin Peter hall. They all just surrounded him and listened to everything he had to say. And, There's one story I'll tell, um, and I hope hope your listeners take the story well, because it's not intended to be racist, but you have to understand this director was a very kind of a proper English guy named Stephen Hopkins. And we get ready to do the first big shot, and he calls action. And me, I've got acting experience and mime experience, and I come out and I'm a predator, and I'm acting like I weigh 400 pounds, and I'm using my fingers, and I'm emoting and doing all this stuff. These other basketball players, these L.A. Lakers basketball players, they've never been in a costume in their life. And they just come shuffling out and stand and hit their marks and just stand there. And Mm -hmm. it looked like big, tall basketball players shuffling. And so the the director comes out and in this very nice British accent, he goes, "Um, that was fine. But next time, could you guys maybe just perhaps shuck and jive a little less? And that could have gone really badly, but all those guys just busted up laughing, and they were like, okay, okay, cool. And they kind of knew what he was talking about. So in the next take, they all came out and acted a little bit more like Predators. But yeah, they were just these big basketball-playing dudes who just sort of shuffled out and just sort of stood there like, hey, yo, what's going on? I'm a Predator. And he was like, no, 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 no. You can't. No, no, no. you, you got to be Predators, not LA Lakers basketball players. But it was, it was a... <laughs> It was a great experience. I got to meet Stan Winston briefly. Um, It just, I I have, I have nothing bad to say about Predator 2. I also seem to remember it was one of the best lunches we ever had. I want to say like, like the craft service truck, I swear, lunch was like, was like steak and lobster. It was like the best lunch I ever got on a film. It was just, it was just an all around great experience.
1: Was it the same trailer that uh, Gary Busey and his team were in? no we didn't see we didn't
0: see that those guys we didn't see them um so that so no no gary busey craziness on set it's (laughs) weird around that same time i think before i was a predator i was working at another shop i want to say i was working with like gabe bartalos who is a name that you guys all know and gabe was building props and he had like slime sprayers for ghostbusters 2 But then he had these other like backpack devices and he said, oh, those are for Predator two. And it was like the big cold spray guns from Predator two. So it was weird because I was like hovering around all this Predator stuff and I knew all these people who were working on the film. So it was kind of fitting that I ended up working on the film because I sort of already knew what was happening and I knew all the players and I knew what was happening. So, you know, that I finally got to work on it was pretty
1: cool. It's pretty cool deal. Oh man, yeah. Oh, <laughs> amazing stories.
0: <laughs> well, and the weird thing about Predator Two is you, you, the younger people have to understand that back then, like the film was released. I want to say the film was released in nineteen ninety. Um, hmm. It just it came and went. I mean, it was successful, but it wasn't as successful as the first film. It didn't have the sort of momentum that the first film did. And back then, it was like movie theater, VHS, gone. That was it. There was no digital. There was no streaming. There was no DVD. There was nothing. So we were all kind of disappointed because we thought, oh, man, we're all going to be in this Predator film. It's going to be the next big thing. We're going to all be superstars. Uh, that didn't really happen. And that's happened several times in my life where I work on a project and I think this is the one that's going to make me. And then nothing happens. So 10, 15 years goes by. and I'll, And then – 20th Century Fox starts doing Predator films again. They start doing Predator versus Alien, Predator versus Alien Requiem, and they start doing all this stuff. And now we got the internet. We got all the fans communicating with each other. Now we got the digital stuff. We got the DVDs coming. So the fans really sort of started this underground movement. So I'd go to conventions promoting the films that I was personally making. And people would come up to me and go, Hey, didn't you work on Predator 2? And so it became more obvious, the more conventions that I went to, that Predator 2 kind of had taken on a life of its own, like 15 years later. And so many people walked up and said, oh, that was my favorite Predator movie. So that's when I started, because I kind of, Predator was almost like a hazy dream, if you know what I mean. Like, did that really happen? I don't know if that really happened. (laughs) But the more and more I talked to fans, I kind of embraced it. And I dug out my old photos, and I made some 8 by 10s And I think I went to one convention, and I sort of sheepishly put the 8 by 10s out on the table. Like, maybe people will be interested. And then it took off. And now sometimes I go to conventions just because I was a boar predator for a day. And that's okay. That's cool. It's like if the fans want you as a boar predator,
1: then you give them the boar predator. That's what you do. (laughs) I mean, They can't take that away from you. I mean, you were the boar predator.
0: Well, I understand now there's a there's a thing, not to get too deep, but there's a thing called imposter syndrome. And a lot of actors and a lot of people talk about it where you go through that phase where like, oh, I I don't I'm not famous. I'm nobody. You know, I I don't know why you all want to talk to me. And you have to kind of get over that and realize it's not about you, it's about fans fans love it fans want to see it they want to talk about it and whether you think you deserve it or not you were something that they like and they want to talk to you and they want to they want to hear from you and they want your autograph and you just kind of accept it and it's like it's not about you it's about um there's a i worked on a star trek episode and there was this girl once who came into a comic book shop where i was at and she was in tears and my my inside, I was thinking, well, this is ridiculous, man. I was, I was just, I was an actor on Star Trek. It's not a big deal. But I was the closest she was ever going to get in this little town in the middle of nowhere to touching Star Trek. And so the fact that she could talk to me about Star Trek and that she could get a picture with me and that she could get my autograph and I'd met Patrick Stewart and I'd met Jonathan Frakes and I'd been on the Enterprise, that to her was the world. So yeah once you see and you realize how important it is to someone like that you just kind of take your ego and your thing and you just put that aside and you just stand there and smile and go i'm i'm so happy i could be here today (laughs) so plus i can think of worse ways to spend my days than hanging out at comic book shops or science fiction conventions or horror conventions it's it's a fun that's a fun thing to do it's a lot of fun
1: oh for sure man well, I just want to say, like, I I really love the Predator two movie, and and I know, um, I mean, the first one is is you know, I mean that that's the original is always the best, but I really liked the second one. I loved how they they did it completely three sixty. It's no longer in the jungle. Right. We're we're in the concrete jungle, yeah. as we like to like to put it, and uh, I thought it was great. I really did.
0: I think I appreciate the movie more now. I liked it in the day. I liked it when I first saw it, but I just felt like it couldn't hold a candle to the first film. When I rewatch it now, I see things that I missed the first time. And I think it probably could have been a better film. They could, But no, now I see the theme. I see the theme of the city as the jungle Um, they were ahead of their time talking about like global warming and stuff. Whether you believe in global warming, they were talking about a future Earth where things were hotter and the city was hotter, and so the Predator was coming to the city. Um, Talking about the gang warfare and how things would change, it was just, the movie was more on the cutting edge than I think people gave it credit for at the time. And again, successful, just, it didn't achieve that classic status until much later. But what I run into now a lot, Cause I'm, I'm the same way. I didn't have cable television as much as some young people did. And I didn't have VHS until I got older, but I meet so many people now who like as kids, they grew up on cable and they grew up on VHS. And so like they had a VHS copy of a movie and they watched it over and over or that it was playing on rotation on Showtime or HBO So they've seen this movie, they saw it a hundred times when they were a child, so they know it like the back of their hand. So to them, you know, some of these movies are childhood to them, whether they should have been watching them or not. That's a whole different issue. But yeah, for some of these kids, kids, Predator 2 is childhood. So, you know, for for better or for worse, Predator 2 is childhood.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um. Well, uh, since we're on, like, the same topic as, like, Predator uh, um, series, would you ever consider doing, like, a fan-made Predator film? Well, <laughs> it's funny
0: you mentioned that. And I don't want to get anybody too excited about this, but here's, here's how deep this whole rabbit hole for me goes. Um, Joel Silver who produced the original predator film and was a co-producer on the second film, Joel Silver. He's produced die hard, produced the matrix movies. Um, I, I worked with Joel Silver a little bit and it's weird because I was so excited to be working with Joel Silver. But the weird thing was, is that I wasn't doing creative stuff because I was a model maker and a prop builder. And I knew how to do all these things. I fell in with Joel Silver for a few years and Joel Silver is an intense collector, and he buys all these really expensive things. Or he'll buy, like, an old toy, like an old 1950s toy that's broken, and then he'd bring it to me and this guy Tony, and he'd say, hey, fix this for me for my collection. And money was no object. So there were times when he'd bring us, like, ray gun toys from the 1950s or toys from this era or that era – Or he'd bring us collectible things. Like he'd have a bronze statue of something that had an arm broke off. And it's like, here, fix this bronze statue for me. So we became like Joel Silver's repair guys, which was really cool because you got to hang out with Joel Silver and you got, I heard the inside, behind the scenes, inside track scoop on a lot of crazy stuff that I cannot talk about. Like there are movies out today that I heard what was going on years ago. And I heard Joel talking to people and talking about people and I then saw it all come to pass. And it's mind boggling because you hear you heard rumors about things happening on films that I was hearing Joel talk about. And I know why what you saw either did or did not happen because of what was going on in Joel Silver's world. But I can't talk about any of that. So anyway. I'm working on all these cool Joel Silver things and I'm hanging out with him and they're getting geared up, working on the new matrix films. They they've already done matrix. They're doing matrix reloaded matrix revolutions. And I'm talking to him about matrix and you know, are we going to get to see Zion? And Oh, I got, I've got the, uh, I got the power armor mock-up in today. Do you want to see the power armor for, for matrix? Yeah. Show me that. So we're having this great time. And I finally got a chance to talk to him about pitching him a story. And, I wanted to pitch him a a Predator film. And my idea for a Predator film took place because we know the Predators have been coming to Earth for a long time. Mm -hmm. I wanted to pitch a Predator film set in World War II that had to do with a Predator ship accidentally crashing in Nazi Germany. The Germans get a hold of the Predator ship and they start reverse engineering the technology and they're going to use the Predator technology to win World War II. So this young Predator and this American soldier hook up and kind of form a team and they go in and they raid the Nazi base to get the Predator ship back. So I pitched this whole story to Joel and at that point Joel was like kind of disillusioned with Predator and he knew that the upper ups at the studio wanted to do Predator versus Alien and he didn't want to be involved in that. So I got as far as pitching a Predator story to Joel Silver only to basically have it shot down.
1: And I was like, well,
0: you know, I pitched a story to Joel Silver. I can't do any better than that. So so now all these years later, I've made this Batman fan film, The Dark Knight Returns. Mm -hmm. And I know there are Batman Predator stories out there, but I've thought about refitting my Predator story and bringing in Batman where Batman becomes aware of a Predator in Gotham And when he finally tracks down and finds the Predator, he figures out that LexCorp has captured the Predator's ship and is reverse engineering the Predator's ship to give LexCorp all this crazy technology. So Batman and the Predator join forces to go into LexCorp to liberate his ship. Now, me telling you this story is is a long way from actually doing it. but. If, if I can possibly do it sometime in the near future, I'd love to do that as a standalone fan film. Um, I think that would just be a fun fan film to do just Predator and Batman. Um, I know some, some fans have already done some films similar. I know like Sandy Calora did dead end and there's predators in dead end, but there's aliens and Joker and in, Pred- in dead end too. So, but no, I, so I have this idea for a Batman slash predator fan film, um, It's a long way off. I don't know if I'll ever get to do it, but I have a plan for it. I I do have a plan
1: for For it. For sure. Um, Well, I would definitely be lined up to check that out (laughs) eventually. The thing that's so
0: cool now is that you've probably been to the conventions and seen the fans are so good with their costumes now. Like, there are guys out there with Predator costumes that are probably even better Predators than what we're in the movies um the 501st legion with their stormtrooper outfits and the r2d2 builders clubs i mean the the costuming out there is so good that i'm not even worried about like finding a predator i know i could go online and talk to my predator friends online and figure out you know okay who can help me on a predator film who wants to come in and be a predator and i know we could we could get a film quality predator costume with very little trouble so so that part i don't even worry about it's just finding the time and the money to actually
1: you know shoot the project so right right so that's amazing um oh what was i gonna say um with the uh i guess i'll kind of jump back to like uh your batman fan film Mm-hmm. Um, I I uh recently talked to uh Justin Beam and I think you guys had had previously talked and uh you guys went on like a whole spiel about Batman and Robin. Okay. And he, he told me to mention that to you. Are you a big fan of uh Batman and Robin? Oh, you're talking about the movie. It, yes, yeah, with oh. uh Clooney in it. <laughs>
0: Batman and Robin, to me, okay, I'll I'll say straight up, it's an excessive, it's, it's not a great film. But that film, to me, it's like, I saw it in the theater and I remember just being kind of awestruck by the film because of just how bad it was. But, a lot of people don't realize, like there was all this hubbub about Titanic back in the day and how expensive Titanic was. Well, there is rumor in Hollywood that Batman and Robin may have even been more expensive than, uh, than Titanic that Batman and Robin just, you know, like they hid the secrets, they hid the bodies more, more well. And, but Batman and Robin, if you look at it for what it is, the movie is just so gonzo and out of control and amusing to watch. And some of it is jaw dropping. Like they're in the museum and there's a full size, like a Brachiosaurus statue that they freeze and they like built a frozen brachiosaurus. So they not only had like a regular brachiosaurus, they had a frozen brachiosaurus and just the crazy over the top production value of that. And the big motorcycle race through the city and the, just the film is just so crazy wild gonzo that I I admire the production. I, I don't think it's a good Batman film and I'm not even sure it's a good kids film. But I think the film itself just has some amazing things in it. And I feel so bad for George Clooney because I think Clooney could have been a really good Batman, but boy, they just sucked the heart and soul out of that film. And he has said in interviews that he basically like dubbed all of his lines. He said the set was so noisy and there was so much work going on all the time that he said they they rarely got to shoot uninterrupted that noise didn't interfere with the dialogue so he said so much of the heart and soul has been sucked out of the movie because none of the dialogue is original like whatever passion and energy he'd put into the dialogue or the performances before they had to go back in and re-record it all so you kind of lost all the feeling of everything so yeah i think batman and robin is just a fascinating version um and toys like We don't care what the movie is, but you have to incorporate these toy designs. And literally, like, they were giving Joel Schumacher toy designs. Like, here, here's an ice skimmer, and here's a motorcycle, and here's this, and here's that. And he had to incorporate these things into the movie. And that's what Batman became. From the course of, like, the 1989 Michael Keaton Batman to the 1997 Batman and Robin. So, seven years. In seven years and four films, it went from kind of as independent as possible to as corporate and commercial as was humanly possible. And it's just a fascinating collapse of the system, but there's stuff in that film. Like they're chasing down the road, they veer off the road and onto the arm of a statue and they're racing down the road, uh, racing down the arm of a giant statue. And then they jump off the fingertips of the statue. And I'm like, that's hard to do. That's hard to do just conceptually in any film. And in this goofy, stupid Wizard of Oz Batman film, you get sequences like that that actually make sense and actually work. And the visual effects are actually really good. So obviously I have this kind of love-hate relationship with uh, Batman and Robin. I don't take it seriously. I don't think I own it on VHS. But I, I watch the film and I have to admire the just sheer hutzpah of the filmmaking these guys just had you know enormous brass balls when they made this film and they just did some they did some crazy stuff so but no don't don't, but fans out there understand i don't by any means say that this is a legitimate batman film it's in batman history but please don't send me hate mail it's not a legitimate batman film it's an interesting hollywood film that has a place in history for good and bad
1: reasons. Let's let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting take on the, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, the Batman lore and all that stuff. Yeah, but, the, the
0: the Batman films. It's like there was Michael Keaton and Tim Burton the first time up, and there was studio interference, but they basically let Tim Burton be Dimper, Tim Burton. It was so successful they got to film number two. They got to Batman Returns, which is my personal favorite of those Michael Keaton films. I, have to I agree. Love that. I love batman returns and batman returns they pretty much let burton do what he wanted to do and it got a little too weird for the audience i loved it but there was some creepy and there was some weird in there and it wasn't as successful as the first one so then they brought in schumacher and they did batman forever and they they brought up the camp a little bit they injected some humor they brought in val kilmer but it was much more successful again. And, and I didn't mind Batman forever. I didn't. But the tone sort of was appealing to everyone. Let's take out the weird. Let's take out the freaky. Let's appeal to kids. Let's appeal to adults. Let's appeal to everyone. And it was successful. But then, yeah, Batman and Robin just represents everything taken to an extreme <laughs> and complete failure on all extremes. It's just it's 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 like it's literally like watching a slow motion train wreck. Watching Batman and Robin is like the world's slowest train wreck it takes like two and a half hours to to, to happen it's just it's amazing so
1: it's like the closest to looney tunes that batman could get to oh
0: my god yeah yeah and that's taking into account batmite and several other things so yeah i'm with you on that
1: yeah (laughs) all right um well i i want to jump to a, a different topic i mean you you've done so much stuff so i mean i could just keep going on and on about what you uh, accomplished but uh i kind of want to maybe jump back to uh fortress now that's one that i I watched when i was younger and it, it was one of those movies that i don't know if it really got like a big like international release it was just kind of like i mean for me it was kind of like that oh like value priced movies when i was younger like well, i'll pick it up right you know but right. well, i could be wrong too but like for my experience i think it was like a a lower valued movie like price wise but i picked right. it up at the store and i actually liked it a lot even when i was younger
0: i think one of the fortress was another good experience for me and fortress you know, you called it a value-priced film. It was not a huge budget movie. I don't I don't have figures in my head for how much it cost. Um, we had a pretty, uh, and what, for those who, who don't know, I worked on special effects on Fortress, and I worked on the Fortress model itself and filming, helping film the Fortress model. And the Fortress model was gigantic. The Fortress model, I want to say, was like 30 feet deep and probably about 15 or 20 feet in diameter. And if you can imagine, we built this thing standing up in huge sections. And then we basically laid the whole thing over on its side so that the cameras could go down the center of it. So rather than trying to drop the cameras down from the top or raise the cameras up from the bottom, by moving it, turning it sideways, you could just run the camera back and forth inside of it without having to do anything crazy so it's easier to turn the set on its side than it was to turn the camera on its side um but this gigantic massive set um this isn't fortress to me is an interesting example of you know you got one type of filmmaker you got like james cameron mm-hmm. and james cameron is like i'm gonna build the whole titanic i'm gonna build it full size i'm gonna build it In Baja, California, and I'm going to sink it in a real pool, and I'm going to do all this crazy stuff. The makers of Fortress, like, they wanted a massive 30-story underground fortress, but they didn't have $200 million. But they didn't say... Well, let's not do it then. They just said, okay, how can we do this effectively? How can we do this cheaply? And that's something about 80s films that I think is missing nowadays. Is Back then, you'd get low-budget films with cool things. like Because you had ambitious filmmakers who were willing to put their own time and energy and all the crew were willing to put their energy in to make something cool and on fortress i think that's how the special effects crew was it's like we knew we didn't really have the money to do this right or we didn't have the money to do it the way it needed to be done but we figured stuff out um things like the railing along the different floors of the fortress we were taking coat hanger wire and we had like a piece of wood with nails screwed into it and we'd clip sections of coat hanger wire and then we'd bend the wire around these screws to make little sections of railing, which were virtually free. I mean, we were just going around collecting coat hangers. Um, We would, you know, cut out stencils and so much of it was like smooth surfaces. And we were using something called gator board. Um, You've heard of foam core. Gator board is like a harder version of foam core. So the outer structure of the fortress itself was all like, you know, steel bars and things to hold it together. But the inside surfaces, I mean, if nobody had to stand on it and it didn't have to support weight, it could be sheet plastic. It could be gator board. It could be really lightweight, you know, simple stuff. So we're like hand cutting pieces and gluing them on. Um, If you had to see like a door or a mechanism in the background and it wasn't going to be close to camera, we just painted it. Like we had a stencil with the big doorway marks on it and we would just put the stencil on the back wall and just, you know, just spray a stencil on the wall to make it look like a door. It wasn't actually a door. To make stuff look like cement, we'd spray it gray and then we'd take brushes and we'd just flick the paintbrush and flick spatters of color on there to make it look like textured cement. So we were doing really crazy, simple, cheap things, but it's still, you've seen the movie, it looks like an actual underground complex and i I think i i liken it to what the japanese filmmakers do and this this bear with me this will make sense the japanese filmmakers no one ever tells them no so when the japanese filmmakers you see all those crazy old japanese films and you'll see like a woman on a hill and she'll throw her arms up in the air and she'll transform into a monster and then she'll roll forward turn into a ball she'll roll down a hill and she'll knock over a van driving down a road down the hill and it's all in one cut and it looks horrible and it looks silly, but they figured out how to do it with no money and they did it. And nobody said, no, they didn't say, Oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. They just went for it and they did it. And that's what I think the low budget films in the eighties were like is nobody told, you no, nobody said you couldn't do it, but if you could figure out how to do it, then boy, go ahead and do it. And fortress is one of those movies. Just, We don't want to tell you how to do it, but if you can figure out how to do it, do it. Like, at the bottom of the fortress, I think you can see construction vehicles. You can see, like, bulldozers and uh, cement mixers and things like that. We Mm -hmm. went to, like, the local drugstore, and you've seen, like, kids' plastic construction vehicle toys. Like, little blocky, like, Tonka-style construction vehicles. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what was at the bottom of the fortress was like dollar plastic construction vehicles from from the, uh, from the local Walgreens or something. Um, but just done so well that you'd never know. You'd never know how to, uh, you'd, you'd never know that we were cheating like that to that degree. So
1: good. filmmaking
0: doesn't always have to be $200 million. Sometimes filmmaking can be $200 and it looks just as good, looks just as good. Um, piece of uh, detail about fortress is we were working out of a studio we built that at david sharp's facility and david sharp was the model supervisor but then we moved the entire fortress to a place called praxis and praxis was run by a guy named robbie blaylock and robbie blaylock is important because robbie blaylock did all the optical work on the original star wars So like all the blue screen compositing and all the visual effects compositing on Star Wars was Robbie Blaylock. So Blaylock had split off and formed his own company called Praxis. And uh, he did some films for a couple of years there. So I got to meet the guy who put together the opticals for Star Wars and he was in charge of shooting and assembling all the effects for for Fortress. So that was a cool thing, just working under Robbie Blaylock and getting to talk to him. And I feel like one day we all went to lunch and he talked a little about Star Wars. I don't remember what he said about Star Wars. But yeah, we got a little we got a little Star Wars out of Robbie Blaylock. That was that was pretty cool. So awesome. Man. So but yeah, Fortress, I'm really proud of Fortress. But I unlike Predator Two, a lot of people don't know Fortress. You know, I don't get nearly as many people walking up to me and talking about Fortress as as Predator Two. But I think Fortress is a it's a solid little science fiction film. It really is. It's good. It's It's kind of scary because, you know, times are getting scary. The times we live in back then, that was all science fiction. I'm not so sure how much of that is science fiction now. You know, times are getting weird, man. So I don't know.
1: For sure. Well, uh, um, I could segue the Fortress conversation into a more horror uh, conversation. Working with uh, director Stuart Gordon, who directed Fortress. Um, was was the movie Fortress the kind like did that kind of transition you into working more in Gordon or Stuart Gordon's films um, like Lurking Fear, right. Necronomicon?
0: What I think happened was, yeah, I think Gordon was getting more individual effects, and I think um, David Sharp was probably a big part of that because David Sharp was able to deliver. You know, and I was I was a guy on David Sharp's crew, but David Sharp was able to deliver on time, on schedule, on on budget. So I think coming out of Fortress, um, Stuart Gordon was more willing to go the effects route. He was more willing to to do some of these things because with his films like uh, like Reanimator and From Beyond, obviously he had embraced the makeup effects stuff. But I think mm-hmm. Fortress was probably the first time where he embraced the miniatures and the visual effects. So, yeah, I think that, uh, encouraged him to, to trust David and to trust the, uh, the effects guys, which, yeah, like you said, led to, led to Necronomicon and, and lurking fear and some of these other things. Um, I didn't get to work with Stuart directly a lot, but Stuart would show up, uh, on seven or, well, he'd show up when we were shooting miniatures. He'd show up when we were building cause he wanted to see what we were doing. Um, So he would give us his feedback then, but he was always very pleasant and always very, um, very supportive. And he was always in a good mood. He was always a happy guy. And uh, this may sound odd, but Stuart was always like a very well coiffed and very well-dressed guy. You'd think that, you know, he's a horror meister who's like flinging blood everywhere, but he like, he always was very, his beard was trimmed and he always looked very, he always had a nice shirt and dress pants on. And he just, he, and he just, he, he looked successful. I know that's a weird thing to say. He just—he always seemed happy and very successful, and very just sort of positive about everything. So, you know, I don't know who the guy was making Reanimator, but the guy we hung out with was was very cool and very happy and seemed very successful. So, I don't know how that hooks together, but there you go. <laughs>
1: well, it sounds like he he loves what he does. Yeah, he I, I would agree. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I don't think he necessarily. I'm sure he wouldn't have minded doing like a $200 million superhero film, but I think he was happy doing what he was doing. You know, he had freedom. He was making movies. He was having success. And I don't think he wanted to mess with that. He was just like, this is my deal. This is what I do. You know, I can't speak for him, but he seemed really happy doing what he was doing. So for sure.
1: Well, I, I, uh, I sort of apologize for the uh, Necronomicon. I, I think Brian Usna made that one, but I mean, they, they worked together in a lot of films. Oh, yeah
0: absolutely oh absolutely and um I think Necronomicon um again another one that maybe didn't get the love that it deserved or get the uh get the exposure that it deserved but Necronomicon um so much effects in every single one of those those segments and I think we again through David Sharp's productions I think we worked on a lot of effects for several different scenes, but most of what, or several different segments of that film, but most of what we did was in the first segment, which you might know the name, but it's the one set in the old mansion on the cliff and
1: the, the, the the guys. The the Rocky water at the bottom
0: of the cliff. Yes. And, that's what we did a lot of work on in a miniature mansion. And we actually went out to the beach and we hung the mansion in front of the camera out on a big Rocky face that matched the background rocks. So we did a, like a hanging miniature of this mansion so that we could actually shoot it in camera. And then we did mansion miniatures. We did car crash miniatures. We did floating bodies. We did sequences like people would walk across the floor in the house and, you'd see like dirt and stuff crumbling out of the floorboards and falling under the water below and the creature splashing around. So we did all these insert shots uh, Mm -hmm. under the floorboards. Um, Now, something we did not end up doing, we did all these shots of like the guy jumps out onto the, to kill the monster who's formed at the bottom of the stairwell. He jumps out onto the, chandelier and he's swinging back and forth on the chandelier and then the chandelier falls and stabs the monster we did the miniature stairwell we did the miniature puppet jumping out onto the the chandelier we did the chandelier swinging and falling we did all that stuff but david sharp had this crazy idea for a monster and this was all kind of hp lovecraft inspired and based so you know Mm -hmm. nobody's really done a lot of hp lovecraft stuff Dave had this idea to take this liquid vinyl stuff and we actually placed like the miniature floorboards in a tank of water. And we were like shooting this liquid vinyl through the floor to make the boards explode outward. And then this vinyl stuff would come spewing out and then fall back down onto the boards. And it looked weird. It looked like flexible, flowing, moving tentacles. They rejected. They didn't like it. And later on, they hired someone else to build the monster and have the monster come up through the floorboards. So that was not us. But we were trying to do some really cool stuff. We were trying to do some really amazing things. And I don't remember if it was in that segment or another segment, but something I did personally was there was a scene where they took, like, the evil book. It might have been the Necronomicon itself. And they tried Mm -hmm. throwing it in the fire. Um, I actually built the book that got thrown in the fire, which I had to kind of create a frame of a book and make it out of black foil and duplicate it and make it look like the real prop because we had to be able to throw it into the fire multiple times and have it not burn up. So I had to make make this metal foil version of the book that we could throw into the fire and then be able to get it out of the fire and do it again if we had to. Um, And then, of course necronomicon I, I don't know if you had any more questions about necronomicon i didn't want to i didn't want to jump into lurking fear before
1: before we well, uh did did you end up keeping that prop or did, did they is it no lost? they ended up they ended up
0: hanging on to it they ended up keeping it um i did remember something else about necronomicon um i was one of the things i was almost completely personally responsible for is There's a scene early on where there's like a flashback to the ship crash, the shipwreck. And there's this shot of this big clipper ship, this big sailing ship, like crashed on the beach at night with the storm raging and the waves crashing. And I actually built the miniature sailing ship. And that led to a whole sequence of like every time David Sharp needed a sailing ship, he called me. Because like once I figured out how to build the hull and how to do all the woodwork and everything, once I knew how to do all that, every time he had a sailing ship model, he'd call me. So I spent years building sailing ship models for David Sharp, which was cool. But I built this large sail ship model, and we rigged it on this miniature beach set at night. And we had wind machines, and we had water spray, and we had all this stuff rigged to go. And I don't know what possessed me because it was supposed to be a ship crash, a shipwreck. But at one point in time, I said, David, we should set the sails on fire. And it didn't make a lot of sense because it was a rainstorm. And but it was like like the ship got struck by lightning or something or there was a fire on board the ship. And David just went, yeah. And so when we got the regular shots done, then we did a take where we set the sails on fire. And then we did the shots again. And the sails on fire is what's in the film. And again, it doesn't make a lick of sense. It just looks really freaking cool. But uh, yeah, so that the sailboat crash stuff was really the stuff that I was mostly responsible for. But they just, you know, they'd come in with little bits all throughout Necronomicon. Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you make this? You know, it was just like a constant sort of, you know, whatever holes they needed plugged, they'd come to us and go... Hey, can you take care of this can you take care of that so so we ended up doing a lot of little things all throughout Necronomicon I think it's a pretty good you know because I think some of it is direct adaptations of Lovecraft and some of it is just kind of inspired by um, mm-hmm. so I think I think as far as Lovecraft films go that one's pretty good that one's pretty solid and Brian Usna I have a long track record with Brian Usna and and he's a cool guy I like him um He's very much a businessman, and he's very smart. And Brian, I can't decide if I think Brian is too much of a businessman or he's he's a very smart filmmaker because he tries not to go over budget, and he tries to be very efficient, and he tries to be very frugal. And sometimes that leads to things that aren't as good, but he's never lost his ass making films either. So I have a lot of respect for the fact that you know, like. like Roger Corman, the guy's been making films his whole life and has never lost any money. So I have a lot of respect for that. So but uh Brian Brian's a good filmmaker and a good businessman, and that doesn't go hand in hand very often. But he, he manages to do both and he he manages to have fun making films and not lose his shirt in the process. So so there awesome.
1: you go. Awesome. Um uh um uh, how do I want to word this? Have you ever worked with uh, screaming mad george i know that he has worked a lot with uh, Usna. yuzna
0: yeah screaming mad george um i worked on the first guyver film and i worked with screaming mad george and i worked with george on a couple of projects after that and several films steve wang did he did out of screaming mad george's shop and then, you know, he'd rent the shop from George. So George would be around even if George wasn't on the project. But yeah, I I worked with Screaming Mad George a lot on the first Guyver film. And it's amazing because Steve Wang is all about sort of reality and creature suits. And Steve is a big one for drawing from nature and drawing from reality, and then that reflects in his costumes, his paint styles, his creature styles. Like, he's very much about making things seem, even if they're fantastic, he makes things seem like they're real and they actually function and they look like they should. George is completely the opposite. Twisty flesh, supernatural, Mm -hmm. surrealistic, crazy weirdness. But George is technically as proficient as Steve Wang is just in his knowledge of molds, painting, chemicals um, and and business management. I mean, I know that's not the fun part of all of this, but just the fact that he was able to keep his shop going and open and functioning and profitable for as many years as he did, because I think he's now left and gone back to Japan. But um, George just man, that guy. You just never knew what was going to come out of him because he just thought about things so differently. And he always just had these you just you wondered where the ideas were coming from. I mean, you didn't know if the guy he just you don't know if he had nightmares at night and he brought the nightmares to work with him. Or if, you know, I don't know what was up with him, but he just you'd think of something and George could just flip it and twist it and make it the craziest, weirdest thing. Um, but no, I got to work with him on several projects and and learned a lot from him. And he was, you know, for as fun and creative and and crazy as he was, he was very, very professional and very knowledgeable and just really good on set. Um, people don't realize that you can be crazy and creative and you can be a sculptor and a designer and you can do all these things. But if you can't make it show up on set on the day of the shoot and be functional and ready to go, then you don't work in the industry and so george could just be crazy and come in wearing his black costumes with his black eye makeup and his crazy shock white hair and his crazy attitude and his weird weird surrealistic ideas but he'd be on set on time with his stuff ready to go and it would work so you know for whatever kind of crazy thing was going on in his head he was an absolute professional and he was really good like i said he and he and steve creatively totally opposite ends of the spectrum But in the middle, both very knowledgeable and very professional and and very put together as far as like doing the work and getting it, getting it done. So, yeah, George, I learned a lot from George. I learned a lot from Steve and George both.
1: Um, Yeah. Um, And I don't know if it's just like uh, the era where, where I grew up in and watched movies, but I've always loved like the practical effects, like. The CGI nowadays are okay, but I'm still partial to. I love like the, the realistic. You know, I, I know it's not. I, I mean, I know it's not real, but it's not fake images. Like I'm actually seeing. I'm actually seeing like, you know, like uh, bendy, it's, bendable flesh, yeah, and just.
0: It's. It's well, you said it. I mean, even when it's not real. Even when it's not real, it's it's there on set and it's actually being photographed and it's actually got light hitting it. And, you know, we can talk forever about CGI and how much CGI has sort of taken things over. But I I think I've had so many discussions with people in the industry on all sides. And it seems like the consensus is coming to CGI was always meant to be a tool it was meant to be a tool to help you do things and it got it got used as the answer to everything the solution to everything and i think if you go back to like the real pinnacle moments like the first jurassic park where you clearly had big prop mechanical animals on screen and cgi And so, like, if you had to see the T-Rex walking full length on camera, that was CGI. But then when the head was bashing through the windows, attacking the children, or the foot was stomping in the mud, that was real. And they kind of knew how to balance and use the tools back then. And then this tool just sort of rode roughshod and took over everything. I was out in Los Angeles when a lot of the CGI stuff really started to sort of take over. I had already moved into trying to make films and do production, so I wasn't as dependent on doing miniatures and props anymore. But I know a lot of guys who just said, you know, the miniature work isn't here anymore. It's just the miniature work is dried up. Everything is CGI. And it was really, really sad because you had a couple of gigantic miniature shows that were so good, like Armageddon and its miniatures and Titanic and its miniatures and even a cheesy film like roland emmerich's godzilla there was just a lot of miniatures in that film and it all worked so well and somewhere along the line cgi took over but here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize cgi was always supposed to be cheaper cgi was gonna help do things faster it was gonna help things be cheaper you were gonna need less people to do more stuff and you were gonna be able to do it faster so rather than have a hundred guys on stage building a titanic model You were going to whip out the Titanic and CGI and it was going to be faster and cheaper. And that never happened. Like, if anything, CGI got more expensive because they started making films faster and turning them around faster. And so the solution was just to put more guys on the CGI and pay them overtime. So, you know, you end up you've seen those credits on films these days where the credits roll for 10 minutes. And there's literally thousands of people working on these films and it'll go to like a computer company in india with you know 250 names in hindi rolling by and you don't know who all these people are and so cgi never became the cost saver that it was supposed to um and i personally you know i never learned how to do cgi I'm, um, i think cgi is awesome when it's done right but mm-hmm. I'm a practical guy myself because that's what I know how to do. And when I'm working on my low-budget films here in St. Louis, I know how to sculpt. I know how to make molds. I know how to cast foam and latex. I know how to do basic puppeteering and mechanical effects. So that's what I do. One of the most frustrating things that's ever happened is my, my film Shadowland. There's a couple of effect scenes in Shadowland that involve miniatures and yes, there's digital compositing, but it's mostly miniatures and practical effects. And people still come up and go, oh, I love the CGI in your movie. And it's like, it's not CGI. And they don't even know anymore. Because back in the 80s, when I was you know, a teenager and a young adult watching movies, you didn't know how they did it all. Like, coming out of a film like The Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi, um, or even a horror film, a big horror film... It's like you knew there were puppets and you knew there was motion control and miniatures and blue screen and uh, uh, Fright Night. That's a good example. Fright Night in 19, er, 1985, Fright Night. You know, there was a big giant flying bat and there were people melting down on camera. And it's like you knew maybe it was a puppet, maybe it was a gelatin head, maybe it was a puppet against blue screen. Maybe, I mean, you kind of had a sense of the techniques but exactly how they pulled it off you didn't know with films now it's like oh the computer doesn't matter what you saw on screen oh the computer like it was just guys pushing buttons and guys and and that's not how it happens but to the the regular audience i think the regular audience just they've gotten so used to seeing a film with 2500 effect shots and every effect shot is massive um I love the Marvel movies. I think the Marvel movies are a lot of fun. But at the end of Endgame, oh my God, by the end of Endgame, you just feel like you've been bludgeoned over the head with a with a computer. I mean, and you've seen so many shots end after end that you're just kind of numb. And a really well-designed, really standout shot is is all it takes. And but yeah, it's The new Star Wars movie is, I enjoyed it, but my God, like one in 10 shots stood out to me and the rest of them were just like a CGI blur. And, um, but I'm with you. Practical is you can't beat practical when it works well. You can't beat practical for the cost. You can't beat practical for a lot of reasons. And I think we're going to see a backlash. I think we're starting to see it now. Um, I just finished watching it. I think I mentioned it earlier. Mm-hmm. Um the the new version of it I really liked it and I thought they did a lot of nice practical stuff and I think the CGI was kept to a fair minimum um or they'd like mix a costume with some CGI and again getting back to that that Jurassic Park thing get as much real on camera as you can and then augment it with the right tools but um no I'm with you practical if possible Practic- practical if I can do it absolutely
1: oh yeah you're right like with uh talking about it uh like how they pulled it off i thought was was really good it 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 made you feel like what you're watching is real yeah and um and when you oversaturate it with computer images it kind of takes that realisticness out of it
0: yeah 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 i i agree i agree
1: and uh I mean, uh, I'll just want, I just want—I just want to jump back real quick, uh, to the Predator thing and, uh, like, with Star Wars, how, uh, um, Disney owns Fox now. Do you think that, uh, will you think that we'll start seeing more uh, Predator films get pumping out through Disney, or? Uh, here's
0: here's the really interesting thing with that whole acquisition. Um, I think i think disney's gonna have to figure out how far it's willing to go like disney now obviously owns deadpool which nobody can argue with the success of deadpool but the question is will disney have the guts to continue to release r-rated deadpool films because they're not stupid they've seen the success and, you know, they still have the 20th Century Fox label, so they can still release anything they want under 20th Century Fox and sort of distance themselves from it. So even if you see an R-rated Deadpool film, you don't necessarily automatically blame Fox for an R-rating or blame Disney for an R-rating. Right. I think, I think they're going to test the waters. I think they're going to test the waters – They're going to do a couple of these harder R-rated projects, and they're probably going to stay safe at first. I think they're going to do more Deadpool, more R-rated superhero. And if that works and that's successful, then I think they'll start exploring other things. Because love Disney or hate Disney, Disney has the resources and the power to make things happen. Like some people love the new Star Wars films. Some people hate them. I like the new Star Wars films, but... George would go 15, 20 years without making a Star Wars film. Disney buys Star Wars in 2012. And by 2015, we got new films coming out. I mean, when Disney puts their heart and soul behind something, boom, you get it. So when Disney gets behind something, man, they can mobilize it and they can make it happen. Um, What we need is we need some good, solid leadership behind Alien and Predator. Because I know, I, I, I can't go into the whole story because it'll take forever. But back when I worked in Los Angeles, I'd hear these stories about 20th Century Fox. And 20th Century Fox, like the management of 20th Century Fox, the executives, for whatever reason, they didn't really like the Alien and the Predator films. I think they just, like they thought they were too highbrow or they didn't want them to be these deep space action films. They wanted to kind of bring them back to earth and they wanted to reduce the budgets and they wanted to change all these things about them. And so they kind of unintentionally sabotage these movies and they started taking alien and taking predator away from what they were in the beginning and started trying to do different things with them. I think, I think people sometimes are trying to do the wrong things like they're trying to turn predator and alien into a serialized horror series like freddy or jason predator and alien are not freddy and jason let Mm -hmm. freddy and jason do parts 9 10 12 13 let them do that that's not what alien and predator are and i think they got really off the track and i don't even want to go into uh shane black's the predator i mean that's just i don't know what the hell happened there but i feel like if they could get some leadership behind those projects people who really respect the source material because even ridley scott when ridley scott went back to the uh the alien series with like prometheus and uh oh what was the second one he did uh, it was- Covenant*, alien covenant covenant yeah when, when Ridley Scott went back to the Alien series, I thought, oh, man, this is it. This is the bomb. This is going to be so awesome. Ridley Scott's back with Alien. And I was so underwhelmed and so disappointed. And so, yeah, Alien and Predator both need some leadership. They need somebody. They need, like, Kevin Feige and marvel kevin feige loves marvel he loves those characters he respects them he respects the fans he respects the comics if we could get someone like kevin feige to get behind predator or alien or both and like figure out a long-term plan and write good stories and build these stories up and do these films i think it could be something really special i think it could be something really amazing
1: oh for sure um have you seen some of the uh i'm not like it maybe they're about a year old like they're fairly new but those little short uh films on youtube that uh fox was pumping out of the uh alien uh they, they were they're each t- uh different titles so i mean i don't know if it was like like kind like a webisode series i doing.
0: saw i saw some of the stuff that was associated early on with um with prometheus where they were doing like backstory about the company and the creator and all that stuff i haven't seen any of the newer stuff i have not seen any of the newer stuff
1: yeah i I mean i would have to do some more research i don't know if if uh disney had acquired them at the time but if so i was thinking like well maybe they're kind of testing the waters yeah and you know kind of doing like these little six minute episodes of uh these stories
0: yeah, that could be, because you know about, I'm sure you know about the whole Deadpool thing, where the director had done the test film, and he'd done like a six-minute test film, and it kind of stayed under wraps for a while, and then somebody, it's hinted that Ryan Reynolds leaked it to the internet, and once the test film got leaked to the internet, the fans went insane, and within some ridiculous period of time, within like 24 to 48 hours, they greenlit the Deadpool film. Like once the uh, test film got leaked to the internet, the fan reaction was so amazing that they said, okay, let's make this film. So I would not be surprised if, yeah, they're, they're releasing little bits of things to test the waters, see what the reaction is, see if it goes viral, see if it catches on. So yeah, you, you might be right about that.
1: And I'll say one more thing about the whole Fox Disney thing. I think it would be smart for Disney to keep, like, if they if they do want to continue the Predator and Alien series, they need to keep it under Fox and not under Disney, like Disney Presents, all that stuff. I think it would be smart if they kept it Fox. That way, they kind of keep, you know, keep uh, the demographic different as far as like for kids. This is more for the adult, or, you know, like, you know, the It's, adult. well, and
0: it's, I think one of the problems we've seen with films here and there, too, is things things are what they are. You know, let Predator and Alien be R-rated adult entertainment. They don't have to be... I think people see dollar signs. They see dollar signs and they think, well, maybe if we could make this PG-rated, if we could make this for more mass audience, we could make more money. The hell with that. Don't Don't try and water these things down. You know, keep... Deadpool harsh keep him R rated keep him politically incorrect keep predator R rated keep it for the adults we need the adults need some entertainment let star wars and marvel take care of everything else but yeah i think it's it's a mistake to try and make everything i have nothing against the marvel films i really don't but i can understand the frustration of like these things make billions and billions of dollars And with Mm -hmm. that kind of money out there, it's got to be tempting for everybody with a franchise to go, you know, well, like we were talking about with Batman, you know, well, we made $600 million with that last Batman film. If we make it a little more for kids and we attach some more toys to it, maybe we can make a billion dollars. And they went too far. So I think trying to model everything after Marvel and make everything into this massive franchise Not everything is meant to be that, you know, zombie films aren't meant to be that horror films aren't necessarily meant to be that. I think, you know, it's okay for some things to be smaller, lower budget, play to a niche audience. Um, And and to a certain degree, we're seeing that with things like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, because they are making very specific things for very specific audiences. And they're kind of kicking everybody else's ass. Netflix is coming along and they're doing stuff. That nobody ever thought they'd see. Um, Is it Amazon who gave us, Amazon or HBO gave us the new Watchmen series? We're getting a Witcher series. We're getting another Lord of the Rings series, for God's sake. You know, we got a Sabrina the Teenage Witch series. We're getting a second season of Lost in Space. We're getting stuff that, you know, as fans, we never dreamed we'd see. And it's not all good. But Netflix and the streaming services has already figured out, you know, let's let's be specific. Let's do niche programming, whereas the movies are still worried about, oh, let's see if we can make a billion dollars. Let's see if we can appeal to every country on the planet and make a billion dollars. So let's make it PG rated and let's let's make it colorful and let's put a lot of CGI in it. And yeah, that's that's not the way to go. I really don't think that's not what I'm going to do. I'm gonna make low-budget films that I want to see. That's what I'm gonna do. So,
1: heck yeah. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of like the movies that you make and whatnot, do you have uh, like? Can you say anything as far as what you're working on, or like, as far as sure. the future for for uh, your company?
0: Sure. Um, we tried. We tried an experiment a few years ago um i i made a a vampire film called shadowland and that was that was not a huge expensive film by hollywood standards but it was expensive by indie standards we spent about two hundred fifty thousand making shadowland and it was a reasonable success then we sort of shifted gears and we made this really ultra low budget comedy called four color eulogy four color eulogy was like Fifteen thousand dollars. So you got like one extreme to the other. You got two hundred fifty thousand and fifteen thousand. And then four color eulogy was was fairly successful. But what we want to do now is, it just takes so long to make films happen, and that gets frustrating. We want to start cutting out all the time it takes to make these things, and we want to start sort of getting geared up. I mean, I don't want to be like. Uh, like charlie band and just start chucking out cheesy movies one after the other but i'd like to start making quality movies a little faster and doing them a little more efficiently and one of the things i want to do is i want to do a really creepy spooky horror film and i've been working on the story and i've been working on the script but i want to take this back to um kind of H.P. Lovecraft meets Trilogy of Terror. Do you remember this film made in the 70s, Trilogy of Terror? And it's famous. It's like three episodes. And it's famous, the the last episode, with the little Zuni doll that comes to life. And it chases the woman around the apartment. So if you can imagine, like, H.P. Lovecraft crossed with that little Zuni doll film. Um, Mm. I want to do the classic guy stranded out in a house in the middle of nowhere he opens up a doorway, he opens up a portal, things come to life, bizarre things happen and really just kind of one guy against the supernatural f- for about an hour and a half and concentrate on creepy and spooky and making your skin crawl and not necessarily on gore, not necessarily on blood and guts, but just creepy and weird and edge of your seat and you know I want it i just i want you to be tense and on the edge the entire time you're watching the film and so i've got a plot in mind i've got a location in mind i've got an actor in mind and you know i i know enough people now in st louis and we've got all the toys and we know how to do this so i want to like bring everybody together for like 10 or 12 days in a remote location and just boom knock this movie out and then get it all done and get all the effects done and get it released within like four to six months, because these things just have a tendency to drag on by the time you find DVD release. And by the time you get the special features done, and by the time you do this and you do that 18 months, two years goes by and you know, time's just wasting and your life is just wasting away. I'd like to get like three films done in the next two years. I'd like, cause we've talked about it. We know how to do it but for whatever reason life gets in the way and people take on jobs and it ends up not happening i i'm kind of done playing and it's like okay we're going to make a film starting next tuesday get on board if you don't want to get on board then get out of the way we're going to make this film boom and i just i just want to start making films you know i'm getting older uh You know, it gets harder to do. It's harder to get out of bed. It's harder to stay up 10 or 12 hours and work on these things. So I want to start knocking out films and I want to start doing it on a more regular basis. So, you know, so that I've got a little bit more to look back on. Um, But yeah, so I'm looking at this horror film for next year. Um, We've got other stuff going on, but nothing that I'm willing to like put my finger on and say, this is what we're going to do next. I really, really, really in the next year or two, I have always been obsessed with the idea of recreating a 1950s black and white monster film, like Tarantula, The Deadly Mantis, Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. But do it set in that time period. Do it black and white. Do it, you know, out on the edge of a desert, a, a, you know, uh, an isolated desert town. Um, and I've been playing with ideas for doing it in that style, with the music and the dialogue, and not funny. I mean, do it in the style that's kind of melodramatic and over the top like the 1950s films were, but do an original film with an original monster and do it like they did back then. Shoot outside in the daylight, shoot miniatures um, and, and, you know, the, the, the scientist, the woman in distress you know, cool cars, desert highways, I just, I would really love to do a film in that style. And I've got some ideas. I don't want to go too far into the ideas yet, but I've got an idea for a monster, I've got an idea for a plot. Um, And the cool thing is, even doing it low-tech like they did back in the day, we have it so much easier now. With the digital technology and the digital effects, I mean, I can shoot a miniature monster puppet and composite it together with a live action scene so much easier than they could back then. Um, the ability to do special effects, the ability to shoot in black and white on video and edit, we can do so many things with color correction and effects than they could do back then. So um, that's one that I but but I really want to try and capture that style, really not modernize it, not do it satirical, just really, really like you watch this film and you, you think you're watching a film from the 1950s, until you find out that it was made today. That's that's really what I'd like to do is is just go back and capture that style. So, awesome.
1: so that's what's
0: going that's what's going on in my head.
1: <laughs> hey, it sounds awesome, man. I can't wait to to see what you come up with. Uh, I I know taking a lot of your time already. Um, no, that's
0: so all right. It's
1: you know. all right. Um, I uh, I guess I'll I'll ask one more question. I mean, there's a lot. That i could ask you but uh maybe we'll have you on another time to uh, you know sometime in the future but uh i guess i'll ask you what is your favorite horror movie of all time
0: Wow. wow
1: if you have one i know it's a hard question to answer but
0: well i hope hopefully this isn't going too far off the uh off the rails here um because I've had a lot of debates with people like there are people who say, like Alien, for example, they'll say Alien is science fiction and other people say, no, Alien is horror. I say Alien is science fiction and horror. It's a, it's a combination of the two. And I'm fine with that. Um, but believe it or not, I would say if I had to pick a favorite horror film, it would probably be Jaws which you don't really think of jaws as a horror film, but if you stop and think about it, it's essentially a monster movie, but it's got elements of suspense. It's got the blood and guts element to it. It's, it's, it's so dramatic and it's so well written and it's so well made. You don't think of it as a horror film, but it's pretty much a horror film with heads popping out of holes and, you know, giant shark faces popping out of the water and scaring you and making you jump. And, you know, you've got a, a number of main characters and who's going to live and who's going to die. And it's just, man, it's such a classic film. And it was so mainstream and it was so successful. A lot of people just kind of forget that, no, this was this was a monster slash horror movie of the biggest kind. And so I'd, I'd have to say Jaws, number one. Um, I love Alien, but Alien is so heavily science fiction. Um And then I think it's going to come to some of those second tier films like Life Force. I love Life Force, but Life Force is so much science fiction. It really is a lot of science fiction. Um, And I know this is blasphemy, but I love Sam Raimi. A lot of the hardcore fans go for like the original evil dead, evil dead Two, dead by dawn. I love that movie. It slays me. You're, you're caught between screaming and laughing your butt off you're in you know being grossed out one minute and laughing the next i think dead by dawn is just in a class by itself um so i really love the the sam raimi evil dead films so but no i gotta go with jaws number one and then alien and life force and Evil Dead and and the others following up a very close second, but yeah, if I if I want a film that's just going to make me feel creeped out and jump, it's going to be Jaws. I got I got to go to Jaws.
1: Oh, for but sure, man.
0: I'll go throw ahead. this at you. I'll throw this at you. Your I, I think your your listeners will appreciate this one. I have a huge soft spot for uh, Jason X. Um, <laughs> the 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 science fiction Jason film. Oh my yeah. god, that film! That film is another one where, like, clearly, if somebody said, oh, you can't do that, you can't put Jason on a spaceship, you can't do that, you can't have a holographic version of Camp Crystal Lake, you can't do this, you can't do that, and they said, no, we're going to do it, man. And that movie, the first time I saw it, my jaw was on the floor, because I couldn't believe some of the crazy stuff they were doing. That he gets frozen, and he gets... Thought out hundreds of years later and then even crazy stuff like he he's unthawing and his arm drops and he whacks the guy's arm off and they just take the guy back to the ship and reattach his arm i mean it's 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 wacky like batman and robin wacky but in a much better and much more enjoyable way but yeah i don't i don't compare jason x to like the original friday the 13th they're very very different films and jason x is really in no way scary but God, I love that film. It is so ridiculous and so crazy and out of the box. I really, really love that film. I've got a copy of that on DVD and about once a year. I have to watch that film. It just, you know, because you just, you don't think they're going to have the guts to go where they go, and then they go there. It's like Japanese monster movies, man. They just, they they go there. They don't care if it's real. They don't care if it looks right. They're going to go there, and you're either on for the ride or you're not.
1: <laughs> so, well, it's got the, like, I, I feel like one of the most iconic kills ever is in that movie where he uh, dumps the girl's head into that, uh, <laughs> well,
0: yep. uh, it's like, yep.
1: that liquid, like, hydrogens. St- I don't right. know what it was, but. Yeah. No, that was, it was awesome.
0: <laughs> it was awesome. And again, you're sitting there going, oh, no, they're not. Oh, yes, they did. Yeah. No, it's great.
1: They went there and-, and they showed the detail. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, so I really have a soft spot for that film. I'm not even going to go, I'm not even going to rank it, you know, up there with Jaws and these other films I talked about. But, um, no, I, I love Jason Axe, And there's there's a lot of just random, weird horror films like that that, you know, I've got a soft spot for. Um, I, I've never been one to just, like like we talked about when we first started talking, I've never been one to just embrace any and all horror. But if it's special, if it's got a sensibility to it, if it's got a style or a flair, um, I'm on board. You know, I, if, it's, if it's something that really spends its time trying to scare you or make you think or, or do something different, uh, I love it. it I, I don't care what kind of film it is. If, it, if it's well done, I mean, if it's a, a historical drama or science fiction film or a comedy or a horror film, whatever it is... If it's well done and it makes you think and it's different, I like it. I absolutely like it. I'm, I'm a fan of all movies, if they're well done and if they're, if they're well put together.
1: So, Awesome, man. Well, hey, uh, is there anything that you would like to plug on here before we take off?
0: Well, um, we're getting ready to um, release uh, Shadowland, which is my vampire film, um, And it's going to be available for rent or or purchase on Vimeo, which is a new thing that we've started doing. um, Because (laughs) I don't know if you follow what goes on on Amazon, but people have been able to get their films shown on Amazon for a couple of years now. And it's easy for independent filmmakers to make that happen. But uh, unfortunately, they're paying less and less money as time goes on. Hold on a second. They're paying less and less money to the filmmakers as time goes on. Like if your film isn't getting paid, you know, streamed a hundred thousand times a month, then they're only paying you like a penny per view or something. They're paying you some ridiculous low amount of money to stream your film on Amazon. So um, we're switching over to Vimeo, but we'll, we'll start promoting very shortly. Um shadowland on vimeo and then we'll probably start putting some of our other films on there like four color eulogy and and things like that so it's already available for rent and purchase on vimeo but we're also going to start including the director's commentary we're going to start including the behind the scenes making of stuff so if you rent or buy the movie then you can watch the other special features for free so um i I, i'd like to have all the shadowland stuff up and running like this week um i don't know when you're going to post the show actually online but um, as of this first week of January, I think within a few days, um, all those things will be available on Vimeo, and and we'll post that on my page. We'll post that on our Pirate Pictures page, um, so so people should be able to track
1: us down and find us. So for sure, and I'll, even on my end, I might even make some posts once you you know once okay. your company gets everything up. You know, I make some posts about uh, checking out Shadowland and sure, the sure. other stuff. Okay, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. This has been a lot of fun. This has been great. Yeah, I've been having a blast, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on here and talking.
0: No problem. Yeah, if you wanna, if you wanna do a part two somewhere down the road, or when we get a little closer on a on one of these horror films, um, yeah, I'd be happy to come back. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good way to spend a Sunday afternoon.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, because yeah. I I know there's there's a few things I wanted to ask, but um. I, I got some other, you know, I got a a wife and kid at home and sure. they need some attending to. <laughs> well, we uh, got to talk
0: about lurking fear. We got to talk about lurking fear. We could probably talk about the Guyver movies. Um, we could probably talk about Shadowland. We probably talk about the making of uh, the Dark Knight Returns. We got, yeah, we got, we got, a, we got another hour and a half that we could do easy oh,
1: for sure. Species, Tales oh, from the Crypt.
0: Yeah, my gosh. Tales from the Crypt, yeah, and um, uh, Species around the same time as Species, and that was a uh, fantasy II, I worked on um, Clive Barker, Lord of Illusions. I worked on Lord of Illusions, so we could talk about Clive Barker, who's a great guy, and Lord of Illusions, and yeah, make a list, man. Maybe we'll maybe we need to do two more shows. Maybe we need to do a part two and a part three.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for it, man. Good deal. <laughs> Well, hey, hey, thanks again for coming on here and uh, I will let you know when uh, this episode gets posted.
0: All right, very good. You got it, sir. All right.
1: All right, so that concluded the episode with Wyatt Weed. Thanks again to Wyatt Weed for being on the podcast and talking about the films he's worked on. And um, you can also... Find more info on Wyatt at WyattWeed.com or his film company, Pirate Pictures, at PiratePictures.net. Check out his film, Shadowland, which is now streaming on Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O.com. And uh, look up Shadowland and uh, check out his movie. Um, I also wanted to plug a couple things from the local area here in the quad cities, Iowa and Illinois side. Um, wake brewing is a, uh, a, a beer bar, like a, a beer brewery and uh, slash bar, but they host a horror movie night, um, or a horror trivia night. I should say it's, uh, the third Thursday of every month. They host a, uh, like a two-hour trivia, so definitely check it check it out, man. It's uh, a really cool thing that they're doing. Um, you can find Wake Brewing at uh, on Facebook. Just type in Wake Brewing, and uh, they're uh, the brewing company in Rock Island, Illinois. They're kind of like a metal-themed bar, and uh, they got tons of uh, great beer that they make there and uh the cans are so cool and uh the beer is delicious uh the i have to say my favorite beer so far is the frost hammer IPA it's it's so delicious uh i can't wait to get some more of that whenever i can they also were at monster fest last year and they made uh, a specialty beer for the texas chainsaw massacre reunion and it was called grandpa's hammer and uh, that was awesome, too. It's pretty good stuff. So, uh, yeah, check out Wake Brewing. And uh, hopefully they can start distributing some of their beer somewhere because uh, instead of locally. But, uh, yeah, because yeah, <laughs> their beer is so good. So, definitely check them out. Also, I wanted to mention Horror Movie Night at Roz Talks is going to be... Um, Um, it's gonna. Uh, the theme is uh, Folchi Night Part Two, and it's gonna be Saturday, February fifteenth. They'll be showing Zombie, Cat in the Brain, and New York Ripper. So, uh, uh, Ros Talks hosts a horror movie night once a month. It's usually on a Saturday, except for March. They're going to do a horror movie night on Friday, March 13th. And wouldn't you guess, they're going to be doing uh, a Friday the 13th uh, movie night. (laughs) So they'll be playing uh, Friday the 13th, Part 5, 6, and 7. So uh, definitely check it out. Uh, Roz Talks in Rock Island, Illinois. Um, You can always email me or message me more details on... uh, some of the stuff that I plug. Uh, if you know, if you have any questions or uh, you know directions and whatnot, and how to get to these places, um, I mentioned the beginning of the show, so I'm not going to really say too much about that. But definitely go check out MidwestMonsterFest.com. And uh, also want to mention a couple podcasts that I think you guys should check out. Check out Funbox Monster Podcast. They're based in uh, Portland, Maine it's a couple guys, Matt and Tristan that they talk, they, you know, uh, talk about horror movies, obviously. Uh, uh, and, uh, they're great. They're hilarious. I listen to them all the time. So if you're looking for more, uh, horror content podcasts, go definitely check them out. They're on most of the podcast platforms and, uh, you can find them on Instagram at uh fun box monster podcast. And, uh, yeah, go check it out. They just put up a hack o episode, and uh, it's pretty good. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely go check them out. And uh, also a local podcast called Dairy Public Radio. They talk about Stephen King novels. Um, I'm pretty sure just Stephen King novels, but, I mean, pretty much anything that's uh, in the Stephen King realm. They, they cover a lot of that stuff, and it's pretty cool. So... Uh, and I think they're on most podcast platforms as well. So check out Dairy Public Radio if you're into like the Stephen King novels and uh, just the Stephen King realm itself. So, but that's going to be it f- for this episode. And I uh, thank you guys for listening to this episode because this is the longest episode I've done, and I'm sure it won't be the last. But uh, yes, thank you guys so much, and uh, we will. S- Hear from you guys on the next episode. You have been listening to the Rude Horror Podcast. If you like this content and would like to hear future episodes, please follow or subscribe. If you dare. <laughs>
0: Hey guys, just want to thank you all so much for listening to our podcast. You can email us ideas to talk about or just general feedback at rudehorror at gmail.com or direct message us at horror podcast
1: on Instagram.
0: Thank you.